And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Frazier and Dieter's Business Speed. I'm John Ray alongside Alpharetta Managing Partner, Roger Lesby. Roger. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm delighted. I'm just glad to have you in town, man. I mean, we get you for what between trips, right? So know, you're on the booth this Next, summer. Uh, th- this week, later this week, we're headed to uh, Spain and Portugal. That's It'll awesome. It'll be our first time internationally since COVID. Mm-hmm. So we're excited about that. That's and uh, as the temperatures are warming up here in Atlanta, it's probably a good time to go. Absolutely. And that's a great place to go if you're going to go somewhere in Europe. Well, that's good. Right. That's good to hear. And uh, <laughs> since I haven't been to Spain or Portugal, so we'll check both those off. Well, that'll be that. Well, I'm looking forward to that report. But you've uh, brought us a great guest today. Davis Butler is with us, folks. But Butler Mercero is his firm based here in Alpharetta. Davis, welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming in. So let's give everyone an introduction to you and your firm. How are you serving folks out there? Well, um, again, I'm Davis Butler. I am a founding partner and managing partner of our small law firm here in Alpharetta, Georgia. We're a group. There are four of us now. We are all former big firm lawyers that decided we would leave the big firm practice and, and do things on our own. We're a corporate boutique firm. We're merger and acquisition and securities lawyers, mostly doing private securities work. We represent all different sizes of companies, and we have clients here in the U.S., plus all over the world. So we enjoy our practice. We do a lot of technology. We have a lot of technology companies that we mm. represent. We also have a good number of healthcare clients and sport companies that we represent. So mm. we have a variety of different things that we do, mostly the merger and acquisition stuff. And it's exciting because he's our next door neighbor right across from the Avalon. So uh, that's right. Yeah, that's terrific. That's terrific. Um, so it, it is it mostly transactional, or do you you outside corporate counsel for a lot of firms, or both? Well, we do both. Okay, it, they kind of come together mm-hmm. when you when you do transactional work. You get to know these businesses really well, and a lot of times you end up being kind of outside general counsel for yeah. these small to medium sized companies. Mm-hmm. So we like doing that. We love, we, we say around the office that we love small businesses. We are a small business and we love supporting our small businesses. So we take on some gen, outside general counsel work when a company doesn't have their own in-house counsel, mm. which happens quite a bit. Sure. Um, but I would say um, probably, I would say probably 60 to 70% of our work is doing deal related work, the merger and acquisition stuff. And probably a good percentage, you know, maybe ten to fifteen percent of it is financing, using, you know, selling securities and raising money for companies in the private markets. Got and it. And the rest of it is the general corporate work. So, Davis, we're still seeing that the economy is uh, is fairly strong. It's been fairly resistant. Uh, a lot of our clients are still doing well. Uh, what do you see as far as deal flow goes, and and, and maybe your viewpoints on the economy? Well, I tell you, surprisingly, this is probably in the 15 years that our firm has been in existence now, this is the busiest we have ever been. Um, And I I can't put my finger on exactly why that is, but we have more deals in-house right now. In fact, it's actually more than we can handle. Um, They're all really good deals, too. 
There's just there's a lot of the baby baby boomers that are ready to sell their companies. So we're representing a lot of sellers. We're also representing buyers too that are taking advantage of good deals out there. So they're both stock deals and asset deals. There's just a lot of really good activity out there right now. And there's still a lot of cash on the sidelines. There is. And there's a lot. um, You know, I said earlier that we have kind of a lower percentage of securities deals out there. But I tell you what, there's a lot of money that's looking for a home right now. We're seeing a lot of um, investment dollars flowing in, especially into Georgia. Hmm. Um, I wish sometimes that we had more private equity dollars that were originating here in Georgia. Sometimes it's coming from out. Most of the time it's coming from outside of Georgia. But boy, we're seeing a lot of it flowing in, especially in healthcare. There's a lot of healthcare activity right now and a lot of private equity equity dollars flowing into some of the healthcare businesses here. So the market's really strong from our perspective. Yeah, and that healthcare space is a is a pretty big industry space for you and your firm. It's huge. Yeah. That's I mean, that's a three trillion dollar business right there. So there's lots and lots of activity in that space. What what uh Give us some color on that, like what specifically where in healthcare you're seeing a lot of activity. Well, you know, for a long time, well, I would say going back about 30 years. In fact, this is my 30th year of practice, so mm. it means that I'm old. <laughs> I tell everybody I've seen about 30 years of how not to do things. Mm. I've, I've watched a lot of mistakes that people make, but I've seen a lot of people do things the right way, and mm-hmm. we tried, of course, doing them the right way. Mm-hmm. Um 30 years ago or so, we saw a lot of money flowing into healthcare practices where you would have entities that would come in and try to create creative solutions to invest in healthcare delivery kind of at that practice level with these things called physician practice management companies. And Mm -hmm. they would create management services organizations that would kind of run those practices and then grow them and then try to roll them up and and take them public eventually. Those didn't do very well in the 90s. Um, There are lots of reasons why that didn't happen. But boy, we're seeing a lot of that right now, Um, especially in the specialty space where there's a lot of ancillary revenue coming into doctors. Like say you've got like a gastroenterology practice Mm. where there's an endoscopy center next door to the to the primary um, or the practice itself where they're doing colonoscopies and endoscopies. So there's, there's extra revenue flow flowing into those doctors. So we're seeing a lot of private equity dollars coming in wanting to buy those practices. And those private equity groups have gotten a lot better at managing practices for the doctors. So the doctors like it now they're getting, experts that are coming in and managing the delivery of medicine, the the administrative part of that practice, which is a burden off the doctor. So they get to, they get to go practice medicine and then they get to capitalize on their future. They get some way to invest in something that's greater than they're just practicing medicine. They get an investment in that management services organization that can exist, you know, for long term, Mm -hmm. and they can capitalize on their future. So we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of consolidation in healthcare. The third-party payers, you know, it used to be that they were happy pre-COVID. They were happy with um, doing the third-party payer agreements with lots of different providers out there. Well, now they want to just, they want a one-stop shop. They want to go 
and negotiate a third-party payer arrangement with one group that brings lots of doctors. So mm-hmm. we're bring, doing these things called independent practice associations where we bring lots of doctors together, and the hospitals sometimes are involved. So we've got big groups now that will go collectively negotiate with the third-party payers. And so we're seeing a lot of that kind of stuff too. We're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of investment and groups coming in just setting up ancillary delivery like um, – collective imaging centers, mm-hmm. collective laboratory facilities, that kind of stuff. And it's, so it's really exciting for us. We're just seeing a lot of good good things. Sometimes it's good for healthcare delivery. Sometimes maybe not so good. It might make prices go up. But mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing a lot of creative stuff happen in healthcare. It's good. And then we, of course, still need more doctors and more nurses and more technicians. Yeah, we still uh, do. I, th- I think they have yeah. to solve the uh uh, the the talent issue as well for sure we're seeing a lot of sh- like problems with shortages of both doctors like crna certified registered nurse anesthetists we're seeing a shortage of mas so we are having a lot of money coming in but gosh we're we're short on the personnel side and the healthcare delivery stuff so we see a lot of that problem are you typically, Davis, representing the private equity groups or the practices themselves? Or what, what, no, where, where I are used you to. Okay. I used to represent the private equity and the venture capitalists when I was at the bigger firm. Mm-hmm. That typically takes a larger firm to do that, where you can throw lots of lawyers at it and go really fast. Sure. Um, when we left, when all of us left the bigger firms, we knew that we were giving up that kind of work. So I tell you, I prefer to represent the practices. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, again, that's that smaller business kind of mindset that sure. we like. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's more enjoyable to us. We mm-hmm. like it. Um, what we really like too on the small business side is since we've seen what future buyers want, we're able to set up the small businesses and and get them ready for a sale in the future. So we really like that part of our practice. So we prefer the the smaller side of it. That's what we like. Yeah. I think you were kind of going to uh, there with that answer where I was going next, which is like, what, what advice would you give to practice owners that are looking at ahead to getting their practice ready for an exit? Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. What, what you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'm quite sure. Yeah. So what, what advice would you give those practice owners as they well, look that's, ahead? That's really interesting. It's something we didn't talk about earlier, but we have a, um, I have a, another company, and I'm I'm a crazy lawyer, and Roger I think knows this. I'm a you know lawyers aren't supposed to take a lot of risks. Like we identify risks, but a lot of lawyers are scared of risks. Like we identify them and we know all the bad stuff. But I'm just one of those that I can identify the risk, but I like taking risks. I'm a lot more entrepreneurial than most lawyers out there. So on that, I have seen so many. In particular, healthcare providers like doctors, dentists, like physicians, dentists, mm-hmm. specialist providers, oral surgeons, that they really, they're so smart in their given spaces. But when it comes to business and structures and organ, they just really struggle. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I'm not being too critical. They just have never been taught how to do this. Right. So, 
I'm actually with my son, who is a specialist, and he he just knows how to film and record and set up podcasts and stuff like that. He what we've done is we created an, another entity called BeWise, um, BeWise Leaders, and where we are trying to set up kind of an online resource for these people to help them make better decisions on the front end. And one of the things that we've done is we tell everybody. Go get a really good CPA firm like Fraser and Dieter. Mm-hmm. Go get a really good lawyer. Like, don't get your neighbor who happens to be a divorce lawyer to help you set up your practice or <laughs> to make those complicated healthcare regulatory decisions or even a litigator. With all due respect to litigators sure. who are in court all the time, mm-hmm. you need a really good corporate lawyer who knows the healthcare space to help you set up your stuff. Um, you know, you're business and all your processes and stuff and you need the good cpas to help you so that's i mean i would start there when you go and you're you get to a point where you're ready to structure and you're making key decisions in your business that's when you need people around you to know how to help you and to do it correctly that is key to getting you off on the right track boy it gets really really expensive when you start something and you get way down the road and then we try to fix it, like I've got a practice now that is selling its practice, uh, an ambulatory surgery center, some other ancillaries, and they are, they're brilliant physicians, but they are a mess. And that transaction is a very, it's a very valuable transaction for the docs, but it would be so much more valuable if they had hired me from the beginning to set it up correctly. I am spending hour upon hour upon hour fixing things from 10, 15 years ago that are a total mess. Mm. And if I had had the chance to do it right from the beginning, it would have cost them so much less. And I think and I think we've proven this with a lot of our clients. I think I would have saved them. I, I would, they would have made, I certainly would have saved them money on the transaction. But I think their business would be more valuable now. I think the outside investors would look at that and go, wow, this looks really good. And it's structured correctly. I think it becomes more attractive to the ultimate buyer of a business if they've done it correctly and they have the right people. And then, Davis, talk about your unique background, which really got you and your firm into the sports arena. Yeah. Um, so after I, I, I started my career at a very large now international law firm, which was a great experience, and I love those guys that I used to work with, um, I was actually pitching for business. I, I was a deal lawyer and I really wanted to try my hand at some international deal making. So I had the opportunity to meet somebody that was involved with the International Olympic Committee. And I met with this gentleman and he said, why don't you come and work with us instead of doing outside business? Why don't you come work with us? And I remember after that meeting calling my wife and saying, sweetheart, guess what? (laughs) And she laughed and I said, you know, if I'll go work for the International Olympic Committee and 
try it for six months. And if I don't, if it doesn't work, then I'll just go back and practice law again. It, it, it'll be fun. I didn't even have a passport at the time I was talking to with the IOC. I'd never been anywhere. Well, I took that job and I ended up working for the IOC. I managed what's called the top program, which is the world's largest international sponsorship program. And I actually had a business and legal role, which is where I get some of that entrepreneurial spirit. I had lawyers that worked for me and I negotiated all those business terms of those big deals, those big international deals for the Olympic movement all over. And boy, I did that for 10 years and loved it. Um, it just about killed me all that traveling all over the world. So I got to work and I actually did business in personally in 39 countries. We did deals all over though. We had, we just couldn't visit every country. That was the problem, but it was, it was a great experience that then launched us. In fact, my, um, my now main law partner, Adam Mercero was the guy that I hired out of a firm to come and work, a big firm in Atlanta to come work for me at the IOC. Um, and he was my lawyer for a while. He's one of the few people out there that I trust with everything. Um, so he came and worked for me and that launched both me and Adam. We probably know more about the world of sport and everything legal about the world of sport all over the world than anybody else. So that kind of launched us also into the world of sport and everything that comes of it. So that boy has gotten us to do all kinds of great things that we love. It's, it's a fun use of our legal skills then to be involved in the sport world. Yeah. And of course that's changing dynamically as well. And for sure, I think you had shared with me previously that, uh, that, that you, some of the cutting edge things that you've done in, in the nil space, which yep. is now there in, in college sports. Right. So we had the opportunity to represent one of the first name, image, and likeness um, companies out there that took advantage. This was a couple of years ago with Georgia on the verge of winning its first national championship. We worked with a company that launched some cool stuff. And, of course, we quickly learned all about name, image, and likeness and the rules governing that, which, by the way, you can put on one piece of paper at the time. So we were we were really on the edge. There mm-hmm. wasn't much there. There's still not much there, mm-hmm. but we didn't have much at all when we started. But we learned all about how you know how you can properly fund college athletes and pay them for the use of their image. And boy, that first project, we were really happy to be able to get some money to some athletes at the University of Georgia. And there were a number of them that benefited greatly from that first little program. And we ended up selling that company for those guys that started it. They were some former UGA football players and they did really well. And everybody, everybody won from that. So that was fun. We've also done some stuff like we're in the, involved now. I'm sure everybody's reading in the newspaper all the conference realignment stuff and all the talk about all of that. That's been fun. Boy, mm-hmm. that's talking about some challenging issues that you have to face in all that conference, football conference realignment, all the money that's involved in trying to do the right thing for particular schools while at the same time protecting the lower level schools that we, you don't want to get left behind. Right. I mean, the TV contract revenues are just. I mean, it's incredible how much money we're in, talking in, about. Insane how much money we're talking about. 
I don't think people really realize, like I went to law school at the university of Alabama. Um, I mean that, that athletic department at Alabama, I mean, at Michigan, Ohio state, Georgia, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, those are major companies and a lot of that money is flowing from broadcast revenue. So they sell the rights, you know, the, at the league, at the conference level, they're selling the rights for those schools to be broadcast. And the schools and the conferences are sharing the revenue. So if right. you're a member of the SEC, for example, you're getting something like in excess of 80 plus million dollars a year for all of your home games to be broadcast. Compare that with the ACC, which is getting just a little over $30 million a year. That's a huge difference, and that's unsustainable for the yeah, ACC yeah, year, schools. Year in and year yeah, out. Yeah, right. Totally. That's $50 million difference. So something's got to change. And so either, you know, take the ACC or Pac-12. I mean, you can take any, any, but the, any conference but the SEC and the Big Ten. I mean, you've – Something's got to change with those other conferences. Either they come together and they figure it out with the broadcasters or they create another conference and people get left behind. There's all kinds, or maybe some join the Big Ten and the SEC, but they can only, those big conferences can only get so big. So there's all kinds of great complicated issues. Um, what I like about it, though, is that there's some pretty smart people and and people that care, like the people that I'm working with, they really care about not only their school, but their other schools. There's there's a lot of people that are that are looking after the best interests of athletes and all this, too. Yeah, sometimes really I wonder whether it would lead to maybe 30 to 50 schools, you know, playing in that space and everybody else going more back to the uh, student-athlete it model. May, it may be. Uh, because they can't make money on any of the sports. Yeah, it may be. And then the other complicated issue is what about the non-revenue sports that are right. so important too? And they, you know, they often refer to those as the Olympic sports. So not basketball and football, but the sports like rowing and tennis and other sports. Baseball, that are still, softball, they're really important. track and field, right. lacrosse, soccer, right. all the sports, swimming. And those are, those people that are participating in those sports, I mean, they're getting, those are, those kids' education, they're going on a lot of times and competing in international events, mm -hmm. and they deserve our support, and they deserve that. They're good athletes just like those football players, but it's just not as popular at a broadcast level. So the question is, you know, how do you protect that? I mean, there is some really complicated issues, so it's that's fun to work on too. The other issue, the other thing that we've gotten to do that I've gotten to do is work on the Larry Nasser stuff in response to the Larry Nasser and USA gymnastics. Um, Let, let's give terrible. folks background on who Larry Nasser okay, is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Remember you guys will remember that Larry Nasser was the doctor that sexually assaulted and abused um, hundreds of little girls in, in I, th I think little boys too, in gymnastics. Um, particularly those little girls and he was he was a representative and paid by USA gymnastics and horrible horrible things that were done um in response there's all been all kinds of response lawsuits everything involving Larry Nasser um and he's in jail now for the rest of his life but the the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee formed a commission called the Borders Commission where they brought together a lot of people 
to experts in different groups um, representing athletes, um, a national governing body, national sport governing bodies, some other experts. And they asked me to help with that commission and see if we could, if we could possibly change one of the questions is should we change the structure of the Olympic sports and how they're managed really amateur sports in the United States. Is there something we could do so that we could stop or potentially hinder the next Larry Nasser? Now I will tell you one thing I learned from doing that. And, and it, that was a hard project to work on when you hear the stories of what yeah. happened. Brutal. Um, some of the saddest things I've ever heard. But gosh, when you when you look at guys like Larry Nasser and how sneaky they are and how deliberate and how patient and how evil, it's it's I think it's probably impossible to totally stop it. But boy, we can hinder it. If we put in the right protections in place, we can make it a lot harder. And so what we did is we made some recommendations to change some of the governing structure of Olympic sport in the United and amateur sport in the U.S. And then from that, I got the opportunity to work with people in Congress and, and rewrite the Ted Stevens Act, which is the act that governs amateur sport in the United States. That was a fascinating project. And what we did is we actually gave the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee more power to not just kind of look at gymnastics and say, okay, you're okay, but to actually have a more of a role in the governance. Like if you're not governing, we're going to, we're going to remove you, your board and your leadership, and we're going to take over and we're going to make sure that there's proper reporting of abuse, that you have the proper governance structures in place. And we gave that, we gave the Olympic committee in the U S we gave them a lot of power over those national governing bodies to try to, block if if there's an issue it's got to be fixed immediately and you know we have we have a body of um we have a body now so that when there's an issue it has to be abuse has to be reported immediately to that body that was that was a really satisfying piece of work that we got to do very exciting John, that's pretty cool stuff for yeah. a uh, for a small Alpharetta law firm, isn't it? <laughs> I know it. I know it. He uh, Davis is way too modest when he started the show. Way too modest in terms of talking about a small firm. You you punch above your weight for sure, Davis. Oh, thank you. For yeah, that. yeah. That's that's uh, fantastic work. So what 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 is that? Um, following up on that, I mean, how how do you see that? I mean, as terrible as that case was, it has some positives that come out of it, right, in terms of protections. And so how does that kind of play out through the, through the rest of the, of the sports industry? How do you see that happening? Well, Because um, it's been a couple of years now, right, two or three years since that happened. It's, yeah, I, and, think, I think now the, probably the best thing that came of it is awareness mm-hmm. and people – I mean, it was everybody. Know, I mean, most people. I'm glad you asked me just to remind everybody who Larry Nasser was, because I'm sure there are some people out there that need to be reminded. Right. But for the most part, people once their memory is jogged, at least they know about it. Mm-hmm. And so, when people see grooming by a predator, or when they see even abuse, it doesn't even have to be sexual abuse mm-hmm. now, when it's abuse, like verbal abuse of an athlete, right. 
Um, things like, like there was one story where a young Olympic athlete, her father died and the coach would not allow her to go to her dad's funeral, you know, stuff like that. Mm. That's over the top abusive. Now people are reporting those things and that's a really good positive thing that came of it. So, and, and there's protections now put in place for the reporter, um, if you, you know, you could call them a whistleblower, mm-hmm. but more it's a reporter. Like people now know that they need to report. Yeah. I will tell you there was, um, and I won't tell you, it's probably not appropriate for me to tell who it was, but there was a local school here in Atlanta that had a sexual abuse problem here that I got contacted about. And I was all over the principal of that school. They are they are mandatory reporters, and that guy did not report. Mm. And I got all over them, called the police, got the police involved. There was an investigation. Now, I mean, now they know. And the more people that know about mandatory reporting, the better. And the more likelihood we are, more likely we are to stop those abusers in their tracks before it gets too far. Larry Nasser abused hundreds of kids mm-hmm. before it was stopped. Right. And and for, for those, and, and there are safeguards around those that have to report. They yes, are subject they, to they man, are. Man, right. So, they cannot be sued for that. Right. right. So, yeah. So, t- talk about that specifically because people may have some questions about that and it, uh, think about the downside of reporting, right? Yeah. There really are no downsides except for one that I want to just mention that is a problem that we haven't been able to fix yet. But if you report, like let's say I'm, I've got a child that's playing softball and I see something that's not appropriate. There, there's no legal ramifications. You can't file a case against me. Like you can't sue me for defamation for a report of a of some type of abuse of any any type. Okay, there are really good federal protections for that that supersede everything. Okay, so that's there. Here's what some people, most people don't know this, but in a lot of those Larry Nasser cases, remember he was a physician. And he was examining these little girls. And I won't give you the details because it's horrible. Yeah. But he did that in front of moms that mm. were in the room. Mm. That is a huge problem. So the moms in some cases, and I get this, having been a parent and you want your child to do really well, you want your child, they wanted their children to be part of a team. And they did not want to rock the boat at all. Right. And they were afraid that their position and their opportunity on a team that would lead to lots of money and notoriety, I think that they were afraid of raising an issue. That's a problem that I don't think any structure can fix. And that's really sad to me. Mm. And I just don't know... Like, how do you change the heart of a person where you you balance the protection of a child over the child making a team or, you know, pers- you know, I don't I don't know how to do that. And I think that the the Olympic Committee itself was really interested in 
how do we do that? How do we change the mindset of all the parents and coaches and everybody else so that you're not afraid of losing something in that reporting? Mm-hmm. Everybody gets you can't be sued now, but what about that other piece? That's something I think that still has to be worked on, that we've got to value protection of the kids over the, you know, what's going to happen, uh, the possibility of not making the king. Even, you know, the Carolis, they're the big famous people from – from the the old Russian bloc countries that right. were running the ranch down mm-hmm. in Texas where a lot of this happened. The girls that were at that ranch, they were afraid of asking for another bar of soap because it's, this is what some of the testimony was because they were afraid that if they, they made some kind of, it would be viewed as a complaint and they would be somehow like it would be looked at poorly you mm. know, on them by the Crowleys in some way. That's, that's kind of got to stop. That's the stuff that we've got to figure out how to stop. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Good work by Davis Butler, Butler Mercero. Uh, wow. Davis, um, lots of great cases, work clients that you're working with trying to make the world a better place. So thank you for that work. It's, this has been a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you coming in, but before we let you go, uh, there may be some folks that would like to be in touch, would like to learn more about your work, maybe engage you for something they've got on their mind. How can they do that? Well, I'd love to help anybody that needs help. Um, you can go to our website at butlermercero.com. And Mercero is a tough one. It's M-E-R-S-E-R-E-A-U. So it's butlermercero.com, and you can get all the information about us off our website. Terrific. Davis Butler with Butler Mercero here in Alpharetta. Davis, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Davis. Thank you, Roger. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder, Business Beat is brought to you by Frazier & Dieter. And Frazier & Dieter is one of the fastest-growing accounting and advisory firms in the U.S. because, and internationally now, because they serve the emerging needs of their clients as they evolve. They serve clients from the global Fortune 1000 to growing private businesses by accounting for today while advising for the future. Frazier and Dieter invest in relationships to make a difference. For more information, go to FraserDieter.com. Roger, wow, this has been quite a show. Yeah, thank you, John. I told you we had a special guest today, and uh, it was great. You always thank have you, Davis. Great, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You always have great guests, and another one today. So thank you again, Davis. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And Roger, we'll see you again next month, right? We will. Fully refreshed, I hope. Absolutely. And uh, a report from Spain coming up next month, folks. So for my uh, sidekick here, Roger Lesby, and our guest, Davis Butler, I'm John Ray. Join us next time for Frazier & Dieter's Business Beat. (laughs) 